I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. What of you? Welcome to For Your Ears Only. This is a spin-off podcast from the Optimism Vaccine Network, wherein Jack Eason and I, Jake Tropila, go through each of the Bond films. We watch them one per month, every month until the release of Bond 25, slated for release in November 2019. Uh, I said his name up top. Let's meet him now. Jack Eason, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I'm I'm glad to be here with another Bond movie. Excellent. This is proving to be a pretty entertaining uh, investment of my time. Excellent. Yeah, the holidays treating you well? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, all going well. All right. So, yeah, nothing like taking a break from Christmas cheer and whatever to uh, watch Thunderball, watch a bunch of men wrestling underwater. That's right. The, the, uh, the famous underwater movie, as it's known. We have <laughs> 1965's Thunderball, directed by Terrence Young who is returning for his third Bond film. He directed Dr. No and for March of Love, took a break from Goldfinger, and now he's back for, I believe, his third and final Bond movie. Um, so, yeah, Thunderball. This is a very, uh, this is a very interesting entry. Um, uh, tell me, Jack, when was the last time you remember seeing this movie, if ever? So, Thunderball is interesting to me in that it's not a well, it's not, in my experience, it's not a widely talked about Bond film. And yet, for some reason, it's one of the ones that's most imprinted on my my youthful memory. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's imprinted It's imprinted my memory largely because it's the one movie that I remember. Uh, I used to watch a lot of Bond movies as a kid. I know we discussed this in the first episode and, you know, how we grew up with James Bond. And I remember I went over to a friend's house and we rented, their parents rented. They knew we were, we were doing a James Bond thing. We were both really into James Bond and we rented Thunderball and we put it on. And for some, I remember this movie as literally being the movie that at some point in the middle of it, we just got rowdy or whatever and we just started running around the room instead. And so I was never quite sure whether I've ever seen all of Thunderball before or not. So it's interesting revisiting it literally, God, literally like 20 plus years later uh, and realizing that I've actually, it's it's weird because I was watching it and kind of going like, yeah, I have seen this before, this bit and that bit. Um, But really my overriding memory of it up until rewatching it again was that just that weird, and it's within the first couple of minutes, is literally the bulletproof shield of the car. Not even the jetpack, which you think I would have remembered most, but no, no, the bulletproof shield that pops up in the back of the car. That seemed like a really cool yeah. thing. So yeah, it's it's one That's of the movies that don't talk about that much, but if for some reason it has a special place in my memory as the half watched Bond film. Yeah, this is a. I would say this is one of the more polarizing ones amongst fans. Um, and uh, I'll just come out front and say this is one that I've never really been favorable towards. Um, uh, Thunderball is interesting. It came after by far the biggest Bond film yet, which was Goldfinger. And so you could say that expectations for this were astronomical. And when I started watching the Bond films, I mean, I remember seeing snippets of this as a kid with all the underwater sequences really stood out to me as being slow moving. So maybe that's why you started running around the room because you got bored with the, the a, slow motion underwater and you had feeling, to find your own excitement. Yeah, I have a feeling so that's, that that's might really, be a major contributor here. Yeah. So when I started um, marathoning all the Bond films just for the first time so I could assert myself that I had watched them all, 
Uh, Thunderball, I think for anybody who's marathoning any uh, series of Bond films, this is where you kind of hit your first snag. Um, and you get Dr. No establishes the formula from Russia with love really improves upon it. Goldfinger certifies the series as a classic and Thunderball is kind of this awkward bloated entry, um, that comes in and, and usually th- that's par for the course with all of the other bonds who make at least four films. The fourth one is the biggest and most bloated. Um, Interesting. so it had been, it had been, this is one of the ones I've also, I also rewatch, tend to rewatch the least just because my attitude towards it is very unfavorable. So I figured for this, I should at least give Thunderball a fair shot. You know, I wanted to sort of cleanse my mind of what I thought about it and just kind of go in as, as, as fresh as I could. And I actually found myself really enjoying it this time around. Um, so, uh, so we'll get into it, but, uh, yeah, 1965 Thunderball. We open uh, with a brand new gun barrel sequence starring Connery himself. Uh, the film was shot in CinemaScope, which necessitated the need to reshoot the gun barrel sequence. So uh, Connery uh, did it himself. Uh, no, yes, yeah, um, yeah. Certainly, um, the yeah. Because honestly, I think they improved on it. Because I haven't really mentioned beforehand, but honestly, Bob Simmons, I think, played the the secret agent in the first. He was a stunt coordinator for the first film, so we, he took that on. The first gun battle sequence of this, he's kind of like he's not very quick reacting. He kind of shoots sideways. I feel like they they nailed it down a little bit better yeah. on this one with Connery, and certainly the switch to widescreen. You say this is the the big movie. The first is like the weight of it, and this is in yeah. widescreen and it's also the first bond movie that's over two hours which so it's kind of like getting as yeah. you say bloated it's getting just bigger uh while and yeah, while it might have been cool for the time you can if you watch the gun barrels bob simmons kind of does like this awkward shuffle before he leaps and pulls his gun out and fires at the camera Henry does more of a, a smooth turn and shoot uh, he kind of wobbles as he catches his balance, but um, overall, it's a much yeah, nicer. Well, yeah, nicer he has look. some time to to figure it out, I guess, and more gentlemanly, kind of like, "Oh, you're yeah. there, bang!" Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, we continue a trend set up with Goldfinger, and that we open with a pre-title sequence that has nothing to do with the rest of the film. Um, Bond is uh, investigating the funeral of uh, another man whose initials are also JB. And I think that's just the first thought is people were to think, oh, my God, James Bond's funeral. But no, it's an agent named Jacques Bouvard who works with Spectre. He's yes, number it, six. Yes, it opens on the shot of the coffin with JB uh, and yeah. the initials on. So immediately I thought is James Bond died. Yeah, so Bond uh, goes to investigate this funeral and it appears that this uh, enemy agent is being put to rest. Um, but then he sees what looks like uh, a widow at the funeral leaving. She gets into a car and leaves. Bond follows her into a room and uh, as if to, um, I don't know, what, what would not be a better representation of uh, Sean Connery's own personal sexual politics, he meets this woman and punches her right in the face only to reveal that it is, in fact, the agent we thought to be dead. And Connery's reason for figuring this, this is out is because he looks at her and says, Mrs. Bouvard would have never opened that car door on her own. That is an amazing sequence. I gotta I got admit, this is spectacular. We, we've talked previously about... Um, what is say kind of the the uh, sustained impracticality or an extravagant impracticality of Bond yeah. movies and their plotting? If you're going to fake your own death, why would you show up to yeah. it in drag? Just 
<laughs> you don't have to be there. And then, of course, catching him like almost like Red Grant from Russia with Love, who gets caught because he drinks red wine with fish. And this is caught because a woman had to open a car door right. on her own. Uh, amazing. Uh, remarkable. So detection. Bond and this agent fight. Uh, Bond beats him and strangles him to death. Um, it's worth noting, actually, the, the agent is played by Bob Simmons. Right. The yes, man. I have that so. noted here. Yes, so Bob Simmons fights James Bond. Um, Bond wins, of course. And uh, as agents swarm the room, um, Bond escapes. But one light, little touch he, I like that he does is that he throws flowers on the corpse before leaving. Goes outside. Uh, there's a jetpack on the balcony, and then he flies. And this was actually—I don't have the name of the guy—but this was actually an operational jetpack at the time. And some guy actually flew yes. across the courtyard, which is insane. They are ridiculously dangerous. I know I've read about those before. They are just there's a reason jetpacks have not taken off as a, a useful military technology because it's basically you are just strapping high explosives to your back and hoping everything works out. Um, but they do it here. It's again. I feel like a rope maybe would have worked nearly as well. It's I I don't know. It's again that kind of impractical uh, extravagance. <laughs> he gets just because he literally he jetpacks like he can only travel like a hundred yards <laughs> if even. He's literally and drops down right like outside a, the mansion where his Aston Martin is parked. Yeah, and just and, and I, yeah, and I really like he takes time while the pinchman running him to take the jetpack off, and he has to stuff it in the trunk because it's so expensive, I guess, uh, and drive off. You know, like he has to take time to steal while they're shooting at him. It yeah. seems unnecessarily dangerous. Like maybe they could have done literally, like maybe maybe have someone catch him, like have him rappel down and have the car parked closer to the house. Yeah. Maybe that could be a thing, but that's not how Bond rolls. But no, and that's not how uh, the producers roll either. Bigger is always better. <laughs> you can have him rappel off the side of a wall, or you can have him jetpack, which, you know, I mean, obviously, which it's one true. would be the jetpack? So, uh, Jason Bourne would have rappelled down the wall, but that's not what James Bond yeah. is all about. Yeah. Well, James, or Jason Bourne would probably, like, sort of do, like, some parkour down some sort of balconies and alternating before probably. landing safely. Something By like all that. rights, you should just headbutt the wall into submission and then just jump down. <laughs> Our favorite lunk-headed hero. Yeah. Uh, all right, so Bond uh, gets in his uh, Aston Martin. Agents swarm the car. They shoot at it, but the bulletproof shield comes up, and then Bond uses the car's exhaust ports and starts shooting water jets at him, uh, which, again, seemed like they could be avoided if the guys just stepped one foot to the left or right of the car. But no, they run right into the jets. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, which... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, which brings in, I mean, the Assassin Martin. I mean, it had oil and smokescreen. Uh, now they've got water jets. Yeah, they've got so. water jets, yeah. It, it, Q likes to install a few things in between films, so the so so it seems. up. Yeah. I wonder where the actual exhaust is, but anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. What is, yeah. It, it, it functions as everything else except for a perfectly working car. Um <laughs> Yeah, and uh, so that's our opening credit sequence. Um, what did you think of the sequence overall? I think it's, I think it's, I think it's a pretty nice start. I think it's a pretty good start, definitely. Um, I would say kind of up at keeping that kind of high pitched kind of craziness to it of the man it's a, a big physical fight with a guy in a dress yeah. uh, thrown in it, it gives you that sense of nothing is as it seems it kind of plays with all that stuff so yeah definitely i think this is this is a thunderball definitely starts strong this is a fun fun opening it does start strong and then as we segue from our opening pre-credit sequence to the opening title sequence we hear this <laughs> 
Now, when I watched this film, it was really close to uh, Goldfinger. And I think this song kind of sounds like Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger. There's Thunderball by Tom Jones. They are definitely trying to kind like they they figured the formula worked really well. And again, like now they just got the male belter, you know. That's Tom right. Jones got a voice on him for sure. Yeah. So you know, in the Bond films, bigger uh, is always better, as they as their ethos goes. And of, um, of course, the lyrics are still "He strikes like Thunderball." So he strikes. <laughs> I do enjoy it though, as far as the themes go. Not my one of my favorites, but um, no, it's it's a, it's, a, it's a perfectly okay song. It works. No, I, I wouldn't have major complaints. I think they're definitely they're trying to at this point would they fall and prey maybe to trying to repeat and try and keep it. You know, you you hit that sweet spot, and then you've got to try and keep it keep it in the same enough that people are okay with it, but then keep adding to it. And I feel like you know, Goldfinger is a hard one to it's a hard one to uh, to work with. Yeah, got around Goldfinger with uh, Coldfinger. Yeah, he wants it all. He strikes like Thunderball. That makes no sense. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Speaking of he strikes like Thunderball, uh, we then open in Paris, and uh, we meet Emilio Largo, a villain who's namely identified by having an eye patch, um, played by uh, Don Selfie. Is that correct? I'm taking that from memory. He's been in several Let me times. see. Uh, Ad- Adolfo, yeah. Che- yeah, Adolfo Celli, probably. I guess I might don't speak Italian, and he is an Italian actor, so I've probably butchered his name. He's Italian. There. He's also dubbed, um, but uh, n- another one of those dub performances that uh, is not really that noticeable, which is nice. Um, so he's yes. He's, go ahead. I would say he's he's a pretty he's pretty good. Uh, Pretty good villain, I think. I got to say, you know, he he the eye patch really just tips it over really well. Yeah, without the eye patch, I don't think he'd be as well known. But the eye patch, I mean, really does help him stand out. He's he's our first uh, main villain with a physical deformity. Uh, oh, that's not true. Doctor No had fucked up metal hands. So, uh, but this is <laughs> but did, this yes. is the noticeable this is... one. This is the equivalent of a scar on a face. Yes, this this one yeah. makes sense. Yeah, whereas. Dr. Known his goofy metal hands and couldn't save his life. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he shows up. He's there for a Spectre meeting. Um, we find out he's number two at Spectre. And um, this is kind of an interesting sequence because there's uh, uh, Blofeld, the head of Spectre, is uh, half behind a metal sheet petting a cat. And really, he's just sort of uh, getting like a terrorist progress report from all of his agents who are out in the field. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I love the concept. And they had a little touch of this in uh, in From Russia with Love as well, with the idea of the director of planning and so yeah. on. That I just love the idea that Spectre is really just like a, another kind of just soulless corporation, but their their business just happens to be international extortion and blackmail. Yeah. And uh, so they're all given progress reports. Blofeld deduces that one of his agents is stealing from him, so he kills him with an electro- electric sh- chair shock. And his chair just yes. lowers into a dungeon. Um, and uh, so as, as you're watching these, or if you're seeing these Bond films for the first time, you might notice some elements pulled from them for the Austin Powers movies. And I think oh, for some sure. of these early Connery films really uh, really lend themselves to a lot of the elements in those movies. Most notably, yeah. uh, as this- we'll see in the next film, mm-hmm. You Only Live Twice, that one is one for sure that uh, Austin borrows a lot from. 
Yeah, yeah, I like I like this one because I all these high ranking people who sits down in those chairs knowing that they're like because this can't be the first time or like does is there ever going to be a meeting held there again? I did take a note that basically that with the electrified chairs that descended, dumped the corpse, etc. This, this is like some kind of like amped up version of Matt Lauer's office. Uh, um, maybe uh, maybe awesome. like if you're a new hire at Spectre, you have to sign one of those at will work agreements where you're employed there and. Until the will of the of your employers, but instead of firing you, they just zap you in the chair you're sitting in and dump your corpse in some sort of death dungeon. It, it makes sense. Yeah, where, do, where does it drop the the bottom? <laughs> Who knows? Just one of those things. <laughs> All right. So uh, during these progress reports, um, Emilio Largo, Mister Eyepatch, uh, reveals his plot to uh, Blofeld, which is he's going to hijack a Royal Air Force plane. Just carrying two nuclear weapons, and he's going to hold them, or hold basically hold the world for ransom for those bombs. Um, that's the really the plot of the movie. Now it sounds very simple, but the way in which he sets this plot in motion is so convoluted. I had to write it down. Yes, yeah, I'm glad you did because I didn't. Yeah. And if you had asked me what happens in what order, I'd be like struggling here. Yeah, so, I mean, but basically you get that he's just trying to get, just trying to hijack these two bombs, right? So that's, uh, that's, his, once again, that's his end game. Yeah, once again, the threat of nuclear power is uh, at the, the crux yeah. of the plot. Mm-hmm. All right, so what uh, Largo's plan entails is he's going to hijack an, a Royal Air Force plane that is on a, that is on a training flight but it apparently is also <laughs> armed with two atomic bombs. Live nuclear weapons that they bring on training flights. Yeah, exactly, on a training flight. And to do this, he has two Spectre agents with him. One of them is Count Lippi. The other is Fiona Volpe. And Fiona Volpe seduces the French pilot who's supposed to enact the training mission named Francois Derval. And Count Lippi has enlisted a man named Angelo who has undergone reconstructive surgery to look like Francois Derval. So once the surgery is complete, he heals at a spa, which actually coincidentally is um, where Bond is staying in the beginning of the film. Um, Angelo kills Derval, and then he takes his position at the Air Force. Angelo, disguised as Derval, hijacks the plane by poisoning all the other pilots with some sort of uh, gas coolant mechanism. I'm not quite sure what it is that he sticks a slot into and kills yeah, everyone yeah, I else. Fear I'm not sure how there is a slot that allows you to just pump whatever you want into everyone else's breathing mask, but there you go. There's a special... <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah, then he crashes the plane in the water, forces a water landing, and sinks it to the bottom of the ocean, and there, Spectre dive down, they take the nuclear bombs, and because Angelo tries to extort Spectre for more money, they let him drown. I have to water. add, I took a note on that, that he is a really bad negotiator. There's literally no reason for him to live through this plot. And just before they do it, he demands double money or whatever. And they're just like, you know, they're just going to leave you in the plane underwater. Like, you're an idiot. Yeah. So, yeah, sorry, Angelo. Yeah. He, tries to, he tries to extort Spectre, <laughs> which the E at the end of Spectre stands for extortion. Yes. You can't extort <laughs> the extorters. What are you, it's ridiculous. Crazy? That's like trying to one-up Microsoft yeah. in a Word document. Yeah. So, uh, meanwhile, uh, we're at this health spa, and that's where Angelo is recovering because he has reconstructive surgery. And this is where Bond is recovering because he took a fire poker to the back in the opening sequence. So, uh, he enjoys uh, sexually harassing his nurse. 
during during his stay there. It's well, straight away, yeah, he kind of forces himself on her, and he's. <laughs> It's it's one of those things. It's one of those things where you go. It's it's rape at first, and that doesn't really no, make it yeah, work it, very it, well. This, this can certainly be viewed as one of the more problematic Bond films, for lack of a better word. Um, so Bond uh, Bond catches on to Spectre's plot. Inspector tries to get rid of Bond by offing him in a traction device, which is supposed to stretch his spine out. Um, Yes, I enjoyed that that yeah, comes with a kill did. setting. Um, I feel like they maybe should have not put that on the device they were now, sending out to I get, I get that there's some aspects of these films that might seem a little dated, and I really kind of like watching them that, back as a time capsule. But this spine-stretching device that Bond is strapped into is so ridiculously silly, I can't help but laugh at it. It's like he's he's fighting for his life. And, and he's, it's not, it looks yeah. like he's, being, he's humping a table to death. It is, yeah. It does not translate very well cinematically, and it's 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 a side shot of him basically look like he's just dry humping a table, and then it has a point of view shot of just going back and forth, closer and further yeah. away from a wall. It's not a very pulse pounding yeah. sequence. So, uh, luckily, Bond is saved just in the nick of the time by this uh, nurse he's trying to have sex with, and uh, he threatens to tell her boss unless uh, she has sex with him. So she finally relents, and Bond successfully extorts sex from this poor woman. Oh, oh dear. It's too extortion. Oh, she's she's cool with uh, it later. Yeah, no, everywhere. Honestly, at this point, Spectre are kind of looking like the most competent, decent right. people in the movie. But anyhow, moving, moving well, a, Just a real that. quick note after Bond has sex with her, it just cuts to him leaving the room and he just goes, see you later, alligator. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. That's it. That's how you yeah. do it. So, um... But, uh, so while all of this is kind of, uh, seems silly, uh, I do like there's some genuine moments of Bond sort of sleuthing around, um, the spa, like where he investigates the, uh, the death of Francois Durval and finds his body. He knows something's afoot and he, uh, exposes the corpse and sets off a fire alarm. Um, so others investigate and discover something's going wrong. Yeah, it's a good sequence. Um, my, my one note that I did put on this is that, and we talk about the different, you know, tighter versus lax plotting is that this is an interesting in that Bond isn't given a mission in this movie immediately. He kind of weirdly, like coincidentally happens to be involved in the mission before he even gets the mission by the pure chance that he happens to be recovering at the same spa that is doing a body swap between this pilot who, you know, they've changed out, etc. Yeah. It's kind of a, li- a little bit of a flight of fancy, but not exactly not exactly the largest one we're going to be asked to follow as the series progresses. Yeah, there's one element I think that um, uh, kind of works in it too, or I think this may be more in the character of Bond. But um, anyways, to fast forward a little bit, um, because Thunderball, while I did enjoy it, this film really does take its time. Um and the the heist of the nuclear bombs themselves after the plane is underwater takes about five minutes, uh, almost what feels like in real time of men operating and moving machinery underwater to salvage these bombs and move them away from the plane. Yeah, I feel it's definitely something we'll we'll talk about it more, I guess, as we have more and more underwater sequences. But I feel like a lot of Thunderbolt, there's a conflation of 
something that's filming something that's difficult to do yeah translate translating as something that's cinematic and that's not the case it's the underwater photography is i'm it's excellently done it's clear sharp oh yeah beautiful image so i'm i'm sure they use incredible technology they must have you know really been a lot of work to do all of that but the end is really just a bunch of people moving in slow motion yeah it and I gotta hand it to him because I it does look great. It could have it could have come out murky or shaky or it could have been edited horribly, but I mean it really there are really these kind of sweeping operatic shots of, of all the sure. everybody underwater, which again nineteen sixty five, this could not have been easy to do and they had the equipment to do it. But they do lean a little bit too heavily on it just to – I feel like they're just trying to impress their audience at this point because yeah. they've made three successful films. Goldfinger is one of the largest films in the world, and now it's like, oh, wow, let's do – let's go underwater. I think that'll – Yeah, it is the Stella Artois of reassuringly expensive attached. Yeah. Which, spoiler alert, Stella Artois is not a very good beer. Oh, never had spoiler. it. Spoiler. You don't. You're not missing out. If you, if you ever want to crack that field, that's you don't have to do that. Although it's you won't enough. lose a lot of money if you do, because it's cheap. <laughs> uh, I, I guess it's uh, <laughs> it's the two are um, what's the word? Anyways, um, so uh, yeah, so Spectre st- successfully steals the bombs. They send out a message to MI6 and the U.S. saying, "Pay our ransom." Or we will detonate each of these bombs in London and somewhere in America. And their ransom of a hundred million pounds sterling is pretty good. Yeah, it's a solid right. ransom. That is a really solid ransom, especially by uh, by nineteen sixty five standards. It's got to be well over a billion dollars. That is, that's that's you could throw some money around yeah. wherever you wanted with that. Yeah. So the key to having. Uh, Specter know that they're in agreement to paying the ransom is they have to have Big Ben strike seven times at 6 p.m. the following day. And uh, so what I like about this, what I, I love really about this sequence is that Bond is called in to MI6 for this mission. Um, and we get a, we get some glimpses of other 00 agents. And uh, I love that Bond is fashionably late yes. to the uh, to the to the debriefing. And, and when he walks in, M chides. So well, look, now that we're all here. <laughs> Bond takes his position, seventh chair from the left. I'm not sure if you noticed oh, that. Oh, I didn't, actually. That's a very nice touch. Yeah. It is lovely touch. So, yeah, there's all these double O agents. They're all handed their own folders. And M says, code name Thunderball. <laughs> so they're, uh, so they're going to be sent out on the mission to so retrieve the bombs. You've been listening to Tom um, Jones, too. <laughs> <laughs> I heard this Tom Jones track, and I think it'd be a good code name for the mission. <laughs> Um, so Bond is originally tasked to go to Canada, but because of his uh, sexual attractiveness to women, he decides he should go to the Bahamas to investigate uh, Francois Duval, the dead pilot's uh, yeah, sister. It's basically, it's basically like Duvall. using his dick as a divining rod. He just he knows where to actually yeah. go to find the real clues. Remarkable talent. Yeah. Also, I forgot one thing. Um to back up a little bit. So Angelo, the guy who tries to extort Spectre, he's left to drown underwater by Spectre. And then Count Lippy, the Spectre agent who hires Angelo, uh, he tries to kill Bond, but he's killed on the side of a road by a motorcycle that shoots rockets. And the motorcycle is driven by uh, Fiona Volpe, who I think uh, steals the show here. She's uh, our first uh, Bond girl who's also, or Bond girl who's also the femme fatale. 
Yes, uh, she's she's pretty great. I got and I, I her introduction. Honestly, there's I can recall more cleavage in a series of shots in a Bond movie yet uh, yeah. to her introduction in the bedroom. And then uh, I like as she's termed as as she's undercover, um, getting the pilot, luring him into his fate so he can be replaced. And I like that they classify her as his social secretary. Uh, which I think is very good code for probably his mistress. Very nice yeah. little touch of this etiquette around it. But yeah, she she has uh, the motorbike with a missile launcher. Just blows the car to bits. Speeds off. Dumps the bike. I just love the idea of you know we've got a bike set up with missiles. She could have escaped. No one's chasing her. But nope, they're yeah. just they're going to dump it, and some kid's going to find that later on and have a great time. Um, yeah. So yeah, definitely she is. I think yeah, she's she's a lot of fun as a, a character. Yeah, she's great. She totally is. She's chewing up the scenery and enjoying every minute of it. And I think the film is a lot better for her with it. Um, anyway, so uh, so Bond makes his way to the Bahamas. Uh, there he meets up with Domino. Um, she's initially not really interested in his advances. And we see that Bond is tailed by a mysterious man in a suit wearing sunglasses, which uh, if you're familiar with Dr. No, this might seem familiar um, because it turns out this is... Uh, our third incarnation of Felix Leiter. The again, a new, like a new film, a new Felix every time. That's right. The third Felix, fourth film, third different Felix. Uh, this one's played by a guy named Rick Van Nutter. Uh, I actually kind of like this guy. Um, it's kind of more of a more of a simpleton, uh, more of like a beach beach bum kind of uh, agent. But uh, I think he works well in this. What do you yeah, think? Any, any thoughts about he's him? A, honestly, I gotta admit, I don't really recall too much of what he does in this. It's I, like I feel like is always like I feel like a slightly thankless role. Like even in in Goldfinger, where a lot of the action centered in the United States, uh, which would be Felix's jurisdiction, he sits back and lets someone else right. do everything. Um, so yeah, it's uh, I I kind of yeah, it's like Felix. He doesn't really steal the show. He just sort of he he fulfills a purpose um and he comes with pinder his another assistant which is almost like a i say another kind of callback almost to uh to dr no i think it was is that the last one that had like felix with the i guess yeah it was with with like what was his name quarrel or whatever um you know to, to like a, a kind of an assistant who aids both felix and bond as they pursue their investigation yeah, the bond yes. ally so um yeah 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 so bond Bond meets up with uh, Felix, and uh, Bond goes back to his hotel room. Uh, in a sequence I really like, he finds out that he's been tailed by Spectre because he has a tape recorder in his room that's in a book. And uh, I like how he listens to it and looks around the room to see where the footsteps would be and deduces that the guy's hiding in a shower. So Bond turns on the hot water to a shower and scares the guy out of the out of the bedroom, basically. I like that it's instantly like burning Instant hot water, scalding, scalding water. hot, and he like jumps out. I feel like again, like the back stretching machine that someone should probably have not allowed that in the shower. But there you go. And also, he uh, punches Felix in the stomach. His in- the introduction of Felix, I think, is kind of fun because he basically square just punches Felix in the in the gut to stop him from saying 007, which would have blown his cover. Yeah. And then later on, when picking up the assassin, he pretty much just says 007, and the the assassin is not officially revived at that point but it is like it was split second later i feel like it's maybe <laughs> kind of like maybe you didn't maybe you just punch felix in the stomach to see if he can get away with this yeah i think that's really more of a misdirect for the audience because we see felix tailing and i think that's the benefit of having felix play yeah. by somebody else 
in each film is that you don't know it's Felix Leiter until Bond identifies him as such because we just see it's this. It's true. I, I get this feeling like, is Felix Leiter a code name in the CIA and it's not actually a guy at all? Like, you could always float that as a fan theory. I know later on they have some specific, in later films, they have specific, more involved Felix characters. But at this point, it always feels like, you know, every, like, we have 007 in Britain and there's just a Felix Leiter in America. That is very possible. I mean, it coincides with one of my least favorite fan theories is that James Bond is a code name and not an actual guy. But uh, I, I don't believe that for a second. No, I feel like he just gives out his name because he doesn't yeah. give a damn. Yeah, exactly. He's he's Bond, James Bond, the world's most famous assassin. <laughs> yeah, his business cards with his name on yeah. it. So, uh, anyways, Bond. Uh, so Bond kicks the Spectre agent out of his hotel room. He runs back to uh, Largo's uh, little mansion area he has in the Bahamas, and Largo's disappointed that the guy comes back empty-handed. So he feeds him to his pool of sharks. Yes, and the pool of sharks being again another fabulous extravagance, which. For all, uh, what do you say, Austin Powers fans, the, the idea of they don't have lasers on their heads in this one, but just the idea that he has both a pool full of incredibly dangerous flesh-eating sharks, but also in one of the aerial shots of the compound, we see a security guard patrolling an incredibly narrow path along the side of that pool. I feel health and safety, really, in this film and the universe of Thunderball are really lax organization. Uh, they really need yeah. to clamp down. There's just a lot of danger that's unnecessary yeah so bond uh bond meets his makes his way back and he actually meets largo at his uh at his little beachside resort um bond sort of like plays himself up as a simpleton that he doesn't really know much largo invites him to do some skeet shooting uh this is one of those bond character moments that i really like where uh bond's holding the gun essentially at his hip and uh, he's like, "Oh, I've never, I've never done this before. Is it? Is there much to it?" And they release a, a shot in the air, and Bond just fires it casually and blows it out of the yeah, air. Yeah, shoots from the hip first time, just, takes it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. of course, says, so, "Oh no, um, it's really easy. <laughs> As if to like just rub it in." Yeah. So my notes, kind of, uh, as far as the plot of the song go, my notes really just sort of jump around here. We meet Bond. In Domino and Largo at a card table, and I think one of the one of the more interesting aspects about Thunderball is there's this sort of love triangle that forms with these three characters. Um, there's uh, there's Bond and Largo's antagonism uh, towards each other because he's trying to stop him and locate the bombs. There's also Bond's love for Domino, and then there's uh, the most interesting thing about this Bond girl, Domino, is that she's kind of unwittingly held as the mistress of Largo um, because he knew, you know, obviously he knew her, her brother and killed him for the mission. So she's, she's really sort of held at the behest of the villains um, plot. Uh, what do you think of Domino overall? Uh, she's, um, I gotta say, she's not, <laughs> she's not that interesting character until the very end. And then she gets kind of surprising amount of stuff to do. Yeah. Um, She's played by Claudine Auger, I think is the way to pronounce it, unless it's Auger, maybe it's a hard G, I don't know. Um, Who, interesting, I think like her and, um, I think Luciana Paluzzi, who plays Fiona Volpe, they they both have like a really storied, um, like giallo career ahead of them. Which is part of like, I know Claudine Auger primarily from like uh, Mario Bava's Bay of Blood, etc. But um, she's a former France, she's stunningly beautiful, 
Bond girl, I think, within it. It's interesting. They apparently they considered like Julie Christie and Raquel Welch and even Faye Dunaway before wow. settling on on this. And I feel like Dama, she, she's uh, you know she fits the she fits the role for sure. But she really she doesn't have a huge amount to do early on in the film. And like she's kind of I'd say she's held by by the main bad guy, and she just sort of blithely walks around for much of it until later on she finds out what. Uh, Largo's actually done and then then starts getting a little bit more actively involved. She's just sort of a, a clothes horse, I think, and a bikini horse for, for the earlier parts of the film. She's just pretty much there to kind of fill up the, the wide screen with something very alluring. So um, I don't know, is there anything that you is there anything she did that particularly like took your attention early on? Maybe I missed it. Uh, I, I mean, I, you you pretty much hit the nail on the head. But uh, I mean, overall, I, I would say I'm more favorable towards her. I think she's really she's really solid, and she does kind of pull off the the that sexy bikini look. But even though she's she's sort of, I think, mean, much more interesting is uh, she's sort of this tortured person inside, and because Largo is an abusive creep. But um, it is, yeah, it does, as far as as far as Bond girls girls go, she's not one of the stronger ones. Yeah, she does actually kind of remind me a little bit. Jumping way way ahead is to uh, license to kill a little bit. Uh, almost the Bond girl in that. I feel there was almost a similar situation in that for a little bit. But that's kind of just a, a random thought I had. I'd have to rewatch License to uh-huh. Kill to remind myself of that. But there's a certain a certain feeling of an overlap there. Nothing major, but it's not exactly like she's the first Bond girl who won't be hanging off the arm of some supervillain and be wrested away by James Bond and both his moral superiority, but also his just uh, swagger that is, at this point, just known to exist and hardly needs to be proven anymore, which is why we'd yeah. be okay with what he does to the masseuse early on if we're going to be on that. He's, no, he's really definitely charming. This is totally an okay thing to have happen. <laughs> Yeah, Talisa Soto in License to Kill is a very uh, similar role to um, to uh, to Domino here mm-hmm. in um, in uh, Thunderball. But um, anyway, so Bond has tracked Largo down to the Bahamas. Uh, he knows something's afoot. He tries to break into um, Largo's compound. He gets in a tussle with a henchman and finds himself in a pool full of sharks. This was one of the things that always kind of. Uh, like that scared me as a kid was not being in a pool of sharks, but being in a pool where a sheet covers the top of the pool and you can't get out. And I always like when people talk about how like they didn't want to take a bath after seeing jaws in the seventies, because they thought there'd be a shark in their water. I almost didn't want to go swimming after I saw this movie because I was afraid the pool would close while I was under the water it's, and I couldn't get yeah, out. Yeah, no, That's it's definitely a primal fear, fear for sure. And and it, it's kind of, it's a pretty exactly. good sequence. It's got a, like a claustrophobic element because they do close it over and then they release the sharks. And apparently they had, to, as what we talked earlier in previous episodes about how, you know, the kind of cowboy mechanics of stunt work back then, uh, apparently they accidentally, they built a gap barrier between the sharks and the people in the pool and one of the sharks still got through, um, <laughs> causing Connery uh, yeah. did not wait to find out what the shark might do. Uh, he just got the hell out of there, and I think one stuntman got paid extra when he realized he had to. Oh, Jack, you're cutting. Oh, in really? There. Uh, okay. Hopefully, this is working. Hello, you got me here. Okay, I got go you. On. There you go. Yeah, I heard. I heard you saying that. Yeah, the the sharks were supposed to be kept in an underwater barrier to not get near Connery was the intention, but uh, one of them didn't yeah. get through. And I think a lot of Connery's genu- genuine fear under the water is that there's sharks swimming near him. 
there's definitely a step up from the spider in Doctor No, which also had like a sheet of glass between him and it. This is a sharks are a whole other thing. And I think one of these stuntmen got paid extra, demanded extra to just to be in the pool with sharks anywhere in the vicinity. Yeah. Um, which based on, based on the safety report seemed like a fairly sensible request on his part. Yeah. So let's talk about um, Connery's performance in this film, because Many people cite as Thunderball is sort of the first one where you can kind of visibly see that he's losing interest in playing 007. Like, uh, you know, the first three films, he's, he's young and spry and all for it, and people consider Goldfinger his best. Um, I think he's actually very good in this film, and I probably the strong... I, I don't want to say he's the, this is his strongest performance as Bond, but it's. I think there are moments in here where it's really some of his stronger efforts... Um, I don't think he looks visibly bored until you only live twice, and that's for a host of other reasons. But I think I think Connery is still really effective um, in the film, and uh, most of the film just sort of has this this. I mean, the film has a very relaxed pacing, kind of to match the the Bond on vacation vibe that is part of the central storyline. But I don't know. I think Connery is really effective here. What are your anything about him stand out to you? Yeah, I know. I know Connery had some issues with production that I think he'd become a big enough star from Bond that he was starting to have, you know, just fans and journalists, media pursuing him. And he was starting to get a little bit tired with it. And um, it didn't didn't really notice anything from the movie for me. I feel like I, I agree with you. I think he's he's still doing the job well here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I think he's he seems engaged. He still works. If anything, I think it's it's the material. You know, if there's anything dragging Thunderball down, it's not Bond or it's not Connery's portrayal of bond it's just those other kind of slower kind of you know it's construction issues with the film as a whole not the not the cast yeah i agree i think uh i i think whatever flaws people have the film i don't think connery is to blame at all and and it is kind of fair of him to be upset with this series because they kept him on the same contract so he was still getting paid the same amount for each film he never they never negotiated anything better for him which is um I mean, nowadays you would have like at this point, I think actors would receive a certain percentile of returns in box office because the role is just so huge. But yeah, thought, back then thought, they can. I thought he renegotiated on Goldfinger, or he got maybe he got a settlement or something that he did start getting some gross, but it, maybe his his payment for the films wasn't so great. Man, I think yeah, I think I remember from the last episode he's mentioned something like maybe it was like a stunt bonus or something he did. Um, mm-hmm. But as far as like his salary, I believe they were they kept the same through each film at least yeah, I know for his tenure. Yeah, he was he was originally hired on a multi picture contract, and he was pretty unknown at the time. So yeah, they were probably probably gouging him on that point. He probably could get a lot more money elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, to move things along here with Thunderball, uh, Bond goes back to his hotel room after escaping the sharks. Uh, he meets Fiona Volpe who then captures him with the intention of bringing him back to uh, Largo's place to murder him. Uh, he escapes and runs through a uh, parade, which is known as a Junkanoo. Um, yeah, I, I looked that up too. I feel, is this the first of many Bond sequences of a chase through a parade? I believe so, it's yeah. Definitely, it's definitely uh, something you know I know that happens in subsequent Live and Let Die, and, uh, and I think it's, it's a quantum of solace. I've only seen parts of that, but I think that opens with like a big parade sequence as well. Maybe it's, that's, yeah, that's like during a bullfight parade of sorts, and uh, Spectre opens at the Day of the Dead Festival. Moonraker's yes. got something going on, but yeah. That's what I was thinking of, yeah. Uh, but as we, we will point out, this this uh, this 
parade feature something that no other Bond parade uh, features <laughs> for damn sure. <laughs> what, would, is, what, what would that be? That would, of course, be, and it's not difficult to miss, is, is the dog that's just pissing on the street in the middle of one of the shots in front of a group of guys who, if you look really closely, all have colorful hats with 007 written on them, uh, yep. which is a little bit of a, an extra textural uh, element that kind of snuck in there. The dog peeing, obviously, is just a dog that doesn't give a damn they're making a movie, but the dudes with the 007 hats were... Uh, taken certain flight of fancy there but it got left in i know they you, you mentioned they they debated about cutting that shot out but it works and i'm glad they they left it in because it really is something that's sort of i mean i did a double take on it i was sort of like wait is that dog i rewound and i'm like did that just literally happen in the movie yep but there it is he's right in the center he's, he's centered into the shot and everything exactly that he's yeah. perfect Probably the best shot of a dog peeing in a movie ever, I got to say. It definitely iconic. Um, so, yeah, I don't believe that is repeated in any subsequent Bond chases. So this is, I think this is the most effective sequence in the film, actually, and not just because of the dog, but Bond it manages to escape from Spectre's car with uh, just some explosive water that this guy is selling on the street, um, and he gets shot in the ankle. And he's so he's running, he's wounded, and he's unarmed and running through this parade, trying not to get caught by three guys with guns. That's true, and they're tracking eventually, his blood trail. Yeah, and and the suspense really builds up and climaxes when Bond picks up Fiona Volpe and starts dancing with her, and notice some, Bond somehow notices that there's a, a sniper on his back, and he manages to turn his movement right as the shot is fired, and Fiona Volpe takes a shot in the back, and he he covers it with uh, her his hand. Yes. An, in- an interesting thing that I didn't realize before that is pr- just prior to that sequence, Bond starts dancing with another That's woman right. for cover. She kind of drags rain and she has she has like three lines of dialogue in the movie, and she is apparently the wife of the owner of the private island they filmed yeah, on for part of that sequence. So that's one way to get yourself in a Bond uh, she movie. shows up again later in the Casino Royale with Daniel Craig. So we'll, we'll be on the lookout for right. her yep. sometime from now. <laughs> yeah, this is- these yeah. weird repetitions. As I said, she's not the only repetition in this. Actually, I, th- I think it's worth mentioning um, because it's just one of those those things that that's kind of happens here and there where they reuse actors is we have a female secret agent, uh, Paula. I don't know if she's given any oh, other yeah. name, um, who works with James, which who worked with James Bond in this, and she's played by Martine Beswick. Um, and she previously showed up as one of the, uh, the cat-hissing Romani women in that <laughs> Yeah. pretty uh pretty dated sequence in from russia with yeah, love the, the um, she was a former miss jamaica but the gypsy cat fight yes indeed one of the great yeah. cinematic uh showdowns of history because they literally do overlay cat hissing noises <laughs> over it um yeah amazing sequence uh i really do enjoy the film but boy some of those things you're like yeah that's not something you can get away with now but she returns in this film in a totally different role uh gets a slightly more to do um, but yeah, just another interesting repetition. Kind of nice. They loop people back in as they as they. Yeah, can. I mean the Bond films. They were all the Broccoli's and and Harold Saltzman um, initially. They they treated everyone on set like family. And if you know if you were good to them and you're good to the crew and you gave them good work, you know they would more than happily invite you back to the next film to do something else. Yeah. So um, they they like to you know they like to keep a close knit group of people and uh, and I think that's really sort of admirable with. Um, with the series like uh cubby broccoli in particular he was just as a producer he just got so very involved on the sets and he was famous for cooking everybody pasta and 
And uh, it, really, these sound like people that treat their, their cast and crew well, even if they do put some of their stuntmen and, in some cases, their leading men through the <laughs> ringer at various points. They're, but they're like, hey, it'll be worth it eventually. True. I've, I've always meant to listen to, I know you can get them, you can find them online, I'm not sure where now, but the Criterion laser discs of James Bond have audio commentaries. I think the Broccoli's participated in and uh, those audio commentaries were later withdrawn from any subsequent represses of James Bond movies because apparently some of the information they shared on that was not uh, stuff that you would want uh, people could perchance uh, bring you to court for their declarations of other people's character I've always wondered what's on those I should listen to them sometime to find out what stories they tell because honestly that sounds like good stuff Um, I wonder if there's yeah like a, a rip of those online somewhere they, they're there. I had them at some point. I'll, I should try and find them sometime. Yeah, might not be a bad idea. All right. Um, so my uh, my notes uh, kind of fall off precipitously as I'm just sort of <laughs> keeping up with this movie here. Bond eventually finds the plane. I'm sorry. What? Yeah. No, it's, it does. It does jump around a lot, and I think at this point, honestly, with the with the killing of Volpe, it pretty much descends into underwater antics. And there's one last yeah. nighttime raid, or no, the nighttime raid we already went through. That's with the shark attack. So, yeah. honestly, yeah, pretty much he meets with Q, gets some stuff, and uh, or did that already happen? Honestly, I'm he not gets, even sure. No, that uh, no, that's that's before everything because he gets the he gets the tracking pill that he can swallow. He gets the underwater rebreather, which gives him four extra minutes of air. Uh, he gets the the radioactive camera so that he can take pictures underwater and <laughs> find the, the nuclear bomb. <laughs> the camera with the Geiger counter. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's uh, such a great technology. So after after he kills Volpe, Bond reunites with Domino underwater, and they have underwater sex. And we That's know this right. Because they both disappear behind a rock and then a massive air bubbles explode from behind the rock. Uh, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what physiological action precipitates that, but I do enjoy that after three movies of James Bond basically just banging on boats that finally he's actually literally just fucking underwater. <laughs> <laughs> Where do we go from yeah. here? Yeah. So uh, after they do that, um, he reveals the plot uh, that Largo's behind on the beach, and one of uh, Largo's got this henchman uh, who's oh, he's a very ineffective henchman named Vargas. Uh, <laughs> His superpower is he doesn't man say anything. Sunglasses. Yeah, yeah. This he is- doesn't say anything, but not only that, Largo walks up to him and he says, Oh, Vargas, he doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink, he doesn't make love. What do you do, Vargas? And Vargas just sort of awkwardly turns his head away from his boss. Yeah, he's kind of always like straight-edge henchman, like the least fun dude to have at parties. Yeah, so uh, Bond, like, without just calmly nails him to a tree with a spear gun, which I really like. It's pretty yeah. good death, for sure. He also, Vargas, honestly, I felt looked just a little bit like Jim Jarmusch. You know, just in case you ever wanted that kind of lift. That's one of your hang-ups is to watch Jim Jarmusch get pinned to a tree. <laughs> he has like a bald you know? Jim Jarmusch. He doesn't he's got quite crazy a... hair to the sides, but it's he is, thinner yeah. on top. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't have, yeah, he's thin on top, for sure. But it's just a little a little touch of it. Just squint while yeah. it's happening. And, you know, if you really if you really didn't like, you know, Dead Man or a film like that, you know, or Ghost Dog or whatever, you know, maybe you get a little bit of satisfaction out of this. We'll see what audience we reach with that particular uh, element. Yeah, and if you don't like Dead Man, um, we might have a problem, because that movie's great. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> well, there you go. I was just the first one I thought. No, no, that's. I'm not saying you don't. I'm just saying any listeners out there, you want to <laughs> want to challenge me? You know, I like Jim Jarman. If you want to fight Jake, we will we will be giving out Twitter details later on. Right. So feel free to fight Jake yeah. about Dead Man. Tell me how much you don't like limits of control, and I'll tell you why you're secretly wrong. Uh, anyways, um, <laughs> bit of a digression. Um, so uh, Bond. Let's see. My notes aren't really consistent here with what's going on. Oh, I on. should note I should note with, with Volpe's assassination also, um she she gets killed um ah, and yes. then he dumps her in a chair and he says, Do you mind if my friend sits this one out? She's just dead. Which again brings me like the James Bond is it's, it's such a like a commando line, like a Schwarzenegger movie. It's just this yeah, fantastically yeah. dead man. And he just says it to two people who are clearly baffled. They have no idea what's going on. I like I like when somebody just uh uh, I think he says the same line in Dr. No when he kills the very first henchman who tries to kill him. He leaves him in the car and he says, oh, my friend is just dead. And he leaves him that's, behind. I think uh, Arnie uh, cribs the same line in, on the guy on the plane in Commando. Pretty much. It's it's the same theory. It's just, yeah. We know where tired. he's taking his cues from. Yeah. So um, Largo finds out that Domino knows his scheme. He begins to... Uh, I wrote this down. He tortures her with ice and heat applied scientifically to her body. That's right. Applied scientifically. I did enjoy that. As a, like, This isn't just torturing someone with cigarette burns, which is an official method of torture. No, yeah. there's science behind this, too. No. It's, if you go from hot to cold, it's <laughs> much, much worse. Yeah, it is interesting. This is, I think, the first instance of a woman being tortured in one of these films. They've threatened them before, but this is actually, in the later shot, you can see a little burn on her body, so it's kind of a... Which, actually, again, you know what? That's highlighted in License to Kill, isn't it? Didn't they do the same thing to her there? That's right, and and not only that, but that that specific Bond girl, she's tortured in both what's her first scene and the villain's first scene, as he he whips her back with a barb from a stingray tail. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Huh. Just you know, you know, very nice. Get one quirky, for the kids this Christmas. Quirky rich people and their their habits. Yeah. So uh, eventually, Bond they locate the bombs, and the Coast Guard leads a giant underwater battle against Spectre, where guys are getting knifed and harpooned left and right. Um, I'd say this is a fairly unamazing sequence, right until Bond shows up and then just starts messing with everyone else, because I think Bond has a lot of fun during the sequence he he's just basically running around cutting guys air tanks forcing them to surface or uh grenading and harpooning guys to death yeah you did the the body count here uh goes <laughs> skyrockets within the franchise there's just like 15 minutes of just total bloodshed um and yeah it's, it's kind of like i said before i feel i'm sure this was very difficult to do but it doesn't quite translate into a spectacle on screen it's just kind of slow and laborious and it's just it's not as cool as people you know as maybe it sounded in theory um until obviously bond shows up with the like jet powered scuba tank with the harpoon launcher in it yeah um which is you know if you're gonna make an entrance that's pretty good pretty good start gotta say and yeah and he starts dropping grenades and stuff it's it gets pretty it's it's actually surprisingly violent in that element and they also harpoon some sharks and there's real footage of that which if you are an animal lover yeah maybe not the great uh i mean honestly i'm kind of a newer to this i've seen several mostly garbage movies that featured cruelty to fish and stuff like uh tintonera which is a really stupid cheap mexican 
jaws rip off they killed a lot of sharks in that movie uh don't watch that because it's just really inhumane and also it's a terrible film but uh, i feel this is lightweight but still a little bit a little bit upsetting to have to you know to see it it's like i guess they couldn't change it with special effects and i'm probably probably hunting that was happening anyway but just a, a word of warning this is the first bond movie that comes i think with an animal cruelty disclaimer yeah i will i will throw out a teaser that some of the actions in one of the later bond films uh, eventually forces uh, the involvement of, I think, the ASPCA in all filmmaking, so that one of the vo- one of the Bond films it basically becomes responsible for that. No animals were harmed during the making of this feature. Claim that rolls at Wait, the end. Was, of was it a Bond movie yeah. that? Because I know, um, I know that uh, Chimino's uh, Heaven's Gate, where they blew up a horse, etc., definitely uh, also I think helped prompt some of that attention. Right maybe, around, maybe they yeah. were right, like were they around the same 19, time? Yeah, nineteen eighty-one or so, right around the same time. So, uh, yeah, a little yeah. Uh, little teaser coming up. Right. Or, or I can, or I'll just tell you, it was it was a Never Say Never Again. Right, uh, well, a, I, a horse gets launched off of a cliff fun okay cool that's yeah that's not normally where horses go good times um well we'll we'll deal with that when we get to it something to look forward to in the wonderful arena of uh weird things you can do with an animal on a film set yeah um anyway so bond kills a lot of specter goons he uh he climbs aboard uh largo's uh yacht the disco volante which i think is a great name for a yacht it is pretty good flying saucer yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. I think Disco Volante. I like. I I didn't look it up, but I feel like somewhere there's a band named Disco Volante. That sounds right. I mean, I I certainly would if I heard that name and nobody had taken it. <laughs> yeah, that's. I feel so. We we haven't done any research on that though. So, music fans, let us know who, yeah. who are Disco Volante or are they any good? And I'm sure there's at least like a dozen guys who never got out of their garage who named their band that. So it's it's I'm <laughs> it's certainly very plausible that happened. Um, so the, as, as unexciting as the, most of the, and we really, I mean, just to put this in perspective, (laughs) we've really skipped over a lot of the underwater sequences because they are, a a lot of the criticisms I have to say against this film really hold up for how kind of slow moving they are. They do look beautiful, but it's just not really exciting to see yeah. people moving that slow. I, I feel like you'd have to, you'd have to watch it with a, with a cinematographer and a stunt coordinator to really, they, they probably yeah. have more of an appreciation than, than a general audience member. Exactly. If you're kind of more at Marvel at the technical side of all, Oh wow. How do they do that side of filmmaking? I mean, this, this would movie would be right up your alley because yeah. there's a lot of fantastic stuff going on. It's just, again, as Jack says, it doesn't translate well cinematically. So it's not always the most exciting things to watch, but they, they pick up towards the end as we get to the disco volante for sure. It, it, it does pick up. That's true. I do like, uh, I, and I think once bond joins the fray with the coast guard, I think that underwater looks pretty good. Um, also, what's really awesome is the Coast Guard gunning down uh, the the shell of Largo's ship. Like, there's one guy with a, like lying on his belly with a, one of those heavy-duty machine guns just laying into it and, until it eventually explodes. I think that stuff is great. I don't know. That's that is really good, and and I really enjoy the fact they have like the shell. That, that apparently that was actually yeah. two separate ships. They actually did connect a hydrofoil and the catamaran. So we and something we didn't really notice until then is that the Disco Volante is literally two ships they stuck together in real life so that they could separate in the movie, which is a 
pretty cool. Um, and again, it kind of plays that, that that is a much more cinematic, genuinely cinematic piece of, of craft yeah. than all the scoops. Yeah, so Bond stuff. eventually boards the Disco Volante and he has a fight um, in the wheelhouse with uh, Largo. Um, and the ship's controls are knocked out of whack so that if you look out the, the ship's windows, which are just rear projection screens, the ship looks like it's going at hyperspeed on the ocean water. <laughs> There, there's a lot of spe- I mean, it's interesting in this film because we talk about how slow a lot of the underwater sequences are and then the a lot of the chases over the water they use a lot of like very yeah. obviously sped like, up yeah they under, undercrank the, which, the film so that it moves faster yeah so it's it's and it kind of throws it off i think it is one of the reasons why a lot of the stuff is not as satisfying as in the previous films which are if they do use anything like that it's much more sparingly employed in this it's very like the disco volante when they knock the controls out of whack like it is literally like a ridiculous just like all over the place like the the boat is just steering 360 degree circles practically while firing on a hand it looks ridiculous it does um so Largo eventually has Bond at gunpoint, but he's uh, spear-gunned in the back by Domino. She rises against him. Her and Bond can't get control of the ship, so they dive overboard while it sails into some rocks and explodes. And I think the idea is that... that Boy, does that explode. Oh, yeah, and I think the ship had... Yeah, <laughs> much like how cars when cars go airborne in a Bond film, they explode. When, if When a ship crashes into some rocks, oh, you better goddamn believe it's going to blow up. What, what I love about this is apparently they used an experimental rocket fuel that they managed to get because <laughs> they had a mil- they had a military hookup. Apparently, this is how they got uh, the military hookup was how they got to Fort Knox and Goldfinger. It was the same yeah. dude. They was someone in the film knew someone in the U.S. military who had connections and he managed to get them close to things. So they were, they got a couple of things from. Um, from the same guy for this, like uh, the very last scene of the film with the surface to air recovery with the plane that picks up the rope and like pulls people out of the yeah. boat. That's a U.S. Navy thing. They also got from the military yeah. this rocket fuel of some description. And the special effects guy, who uh, John Steers, I believe, who won an Oscar for a special effects for this. Yeah, John that's Steers. Right. He won, won an Academy Award for this. Basically, he was given this stuff to help make a good explosion of the boat. And he just disregarded all of the safety uh, instructions and he just coated the boat in this stuff and then just blew it up and the final explosion is impressive it apparently blew out windows of houses nearby it was uh oh yeah an like, extensive explosion yeah it was it's pretty good i mean as explosions go it's it's pretty important like i was watching it in a movie and as it blows up i'm like what the fuck did they just do that's not how it normally looks in a movie yeah i think uh i think specter the most recent bond film currently holds the world record for the largest outdoor explosion put on a film so yeah Bond films they know how to do it big and stuff uh, that's a cool record to have if you're gonna have one yeah and uh and that that uh, that ending where Bond and um, Bond and Domino are scooped up by the skyhook is pretty great. Um, for people who are fans of The Dark Knight, you might remember the skyhook is used by uh, Batman to get out of that skyscraper in China. That's so right, when he, when he kidnaps the dude in an extrajudicial yeah. kidnapping. Cause... That's right, <laughs> Batman has no jurisdiction. And I think, I think this is that's also one of Christopher Nolan's touches of you know, borrowing some of his favorite things from Bond films and putting sure. them into his movies. Yeah, and it's a, it's a pretty cool thing because it is actually, it's an actual real thing. You just kind of like the jetpack at the start is also a real thing, except yeah. that the jetpack never really caught on. Um, that was yeah. one of those things that just kind of got built because they found out they could actually build one. 
Yeah, so like originally with the jetpack, Bond was not going to wear a helmet when he flew it, but because the jetpack operator had to wear a helmet, he he complained that Bond needed to wear a helmet and they had to put a helmet on him uh, to match continuity. But would a helmet fall help fall help you survive a fifty foot fall? I don't. think I, so. I think it's like one of those things where I, I like if you ever notice sometimes in the news where like a cyclist gets hit by like a big rig, <laughs> like it's like a big rig hit a cyclist at like seventy miles an hour. The cyclist was killed. They weren't wearing a helmet, and it's like you're thinking in the yes. reporter. Do you really think the helmet would have helped? You just got to put it on just in case. It's like seatbelts on airplanes. Yeah, pretty much. It's like, you're, you you know, you're fucked. Whatever happens, you know. But then you get that one story, that one dude with a helmet genuinely saved their life in an unlikely scenario. And you're like, well, you know, maybe, maybe it is. Who knows? Maybe it isn't the secret helmet lobby. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's essentially Thunderball. Um, Now, uh, Jack, I don't know if you, uh, you found in your research of this movie, if you looked up by any chance, the legal controversies uh, with this film? Uh, I'm, I don't know too much about them. I know there was some question of authorship over the original novel. So here's, basically here's, I'll give you the rundown of what happened. I have sort of a condensed version. Um, originally in the 50s, uh, Ian Fleming, the original author of the Bond series, and an Irish screenwriter named Kevin McClory uh, collaborated to uh, produce a feature film together um, but those plans fell through after Kevin McClory had produced a film that failed at the box office, so Ian Fleming moved on. But a lot of the ideas that they had put together were essentially, it was essentially the plot of Thunderball. So Ian Fleming later uh, wrote the novel Thunderball, and Thunderball was actually going to be the first Bond film made by the Broccoli's. Um, now, uh, once Kevin McClory caught wind of this, he said, no, you don't. Some of those ideas are mine. And he took them to court. Um, and actually, uh, pretty, pretty, uh, won pretty heavily in his favor. Uh, he has a story credit and a producer credit on Thunderball. And uh, he was essentially awarded like the ability to use the names and characters in the plot of Thunderball. Um, so he didn't have exclusive rights, but he did have the rights from the film available to him. Uh, he just couldn't use them for 10 years. Um, so, and then every, and so essentially 10 years later, actually more than that, but uh, Kevin McClory would go on to produce right. Never Say Never Again, starring Sean Connery, which is a remake of Thunderball. Um, and he kind of did it as an F you to the Broccoli's. And he would a- actually sort of sue um, the Broccoli's every now and again for over the course of 50 years for various reasons. And, uh, this is actually kind of why you'll see Spectre sort of disappears from the Bond films because he had the essentially had owned the rights to Spectre. That's why they couldn't use Spectre for very for very many films. And that's also kind of why it was a big deal for the latest Daniel Craig film to be named Spectre because the Broccoli's because uh, Kevin McClory passed away in 2006 and the Broccoli's uh, had successfully taken the rights back from his estate. So Spectre was kind of like a like a yeah we won sort of they won it won it out lap. in the end I see yeah so yeah they, they won out in the end but yeah Kevin he was really just a thorn in the side throughout the course of the, these films and uh, every time the series tried to restart he would show up again and well, fight for rights yeah. like there was 
uh, legal issues with him between License to Kill and GoldenEye, and then later between Die Another Day and Casino Royale. Well, I guess the moral of this is maybe Ian Fleming should have tried to plagiarize his stuff, but uh, hey, there you go. Yeah. So, so it goes. There's many cooks in a film, and a lot of stuff can happen like that. Yeah. So, uh, Jack, do you have some numbers you want to run? Uh, I do. Um, let me see. Okay, so body count. Holy crap. Um, suffice it to say, uh, I counted, and I, I took a full list. I did a lot of pausing when I was going through this movie. Um, I counted 21 people killed by James Bond in this movie. That is, we were at 20 people total for the previous three films. So he over doubled his, uh, his kill count in this and it's it opens with uh, murdering a man in drag and then basically just mm-hmm. various uh various levels. Now admittedly I have one contentious thing in this. I do count Fiona Volpe in that. Now he doesn't pull the trigger but he does swivel her around. He knows it's gonna happen and then he gets her shot. I'm counting that as a James Bond kill. I don't know. I don't yeah, think I think I think I don't I think, think it's think too contentious. You know, a, yeah I think I know if you know a bullet is coming at you and you put somebody in front of that bullet. I think you're essentially murdering that person. That's, I think that's fair. That's kind of where I was going with it too. Um, and we also have the question of, uh, he beats up the catamaran captain at the end when it's out of control. He kicks one guy off the boat at high speed, throws a chair at another. The boat explodes. We know the captain, the guy that shared, they're both dead because they were in the car or in the boat when it exploded. He kicked the other guy off at high speed. I'm going to count that as a kill as well. These are all things that bring me through to, uh, 21, uh, counts of death um which brings his total james bond's total goes from 20 people to 41 <laughs> at this point this is a big one this is the most bloodthirsty carnage filled james bond movie to date uh largely aided by the extensive underwater sequences that involve him shooting people with harpoons trapping a couple of guys in a room with a grenade underground underwater uh shoot someone with an underwater flare at one mm-hmm. point um, so yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a lot, uh, to this. So yeah, that's, that's pretty extensive. Uh, I did feel actually with the underwater versions, I felt it was uh, pretty unrealistic. They have like, like clouds of blood whenever people are killed, but there's no like yellow clouds to suggest. I feel like a lot of people, if you get like harpooned, you're probably going to lose certain other functions, but so goes the magic of movies. We don't have to dwell on that. I'm just here to be awkward. Um, so sex, how many women does he he hook up with here? Uh, we know that Goldfinger just previously he only had two, mm-hmm. pretty chaste. He's he's a little bit better here. He's got three, so he's kind of back up. It's one less than from Russia with Love, but it's still you know kind of back back in there. And that's with um with physical therapist whose name with Patricia Fearing, I believe her name is. Mm-hmm. It's probably Fearing sexual assault on the job. <laughs> um, which which turns out to be a well-founded fear when Mr. Bond is in the room. Uh, So there's her, there's Fiona Volpe, who, uh, God bless James Bond, he only has sex with her for King and Country, which I think is an amazing sequence. We kind of glossed over his sex scene with with Fiona Volpe, where where he says that... uh, he says that he did it for King and Country, and then he also lets her know that uh, he had a gun under the pillow at all times, which is like James Bond's equivalent of safe sex, I guess. That's right. Um, and then, of course, we have uh, we have uh, Domino, um, who he has actual sex with underwater, which is an impressive one. And he also says that uh, it's his first time tasting women because he sucks poison out of her, which is a kind of a weird thing to say post-sex anyway. So that's kind of a weird one. So we got three women. Yeah. So uh, he so he kills a lot more kills a lot more than he bangs in this this movie. So you know, 
And yet, it's a ratio enough, of one to seven. Want to say, yeah, really, this is family friendly. <laughs> so, uh, age differences, we've been tracking this throughout, uh, just out of, oh, and Bond has now slept with 11 women in total. Gotta, gotta get that in. So, 11 women have felt, felt a touch of James Bond, uh, some of nice. them more willingly than other, I guess. So, age differences, Bond was Sean Connery's about 35. Claudine Auger was 24 in the movie, which puts her at 11 years younger than James Bond, which is, uh, not quite nice as one yet, right? Yeah, no, not not quite. No, it was twelve years oh. between him and Danielle Bianchi in From Russia with Love, so close. Um, Luciana Paluzzi, who played uh, Fiona Volpe, what what's her name? I can't remember. Fiona Volpe, 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 Volpe. I just uh, made up a new I made up a new Bond girl name. She was twenty eight, so only seven years, practically respectable. Mm-hmm. And then there is Molly okay. Molly Peters, who played the. Uh, uh, the the physical therapist uh, she was only twenty three so we're, that's twelve years that matches the current record so there you go right. that's that's twelve years between them um so yeah uh, that's a couple a couple of interesting ones not quite as progressive as Goldfinger where we had Honor Blackman you know really charging out for the the older ladies older in relation to James Bond she's not exactly that old she was like 39 or something uh, but yeah there we go so so those are our numbers we've, we've got a massive hike in kills and just kind of keeping steady on on his uh, his uh, bath or his bedroom hanky panky antics very good yeah so I have a few numbers myself uh, as you mentioned this film did win one Oscar for best visual effects to John Stearns congratulations um the uh, budget for this movie is triple the last film. Goldfinger was $3 million. Thunderball was shot on a budget of $9 million back in 1965. Uh, and amazingly enough, it grossed $64 million in the U.S., which, if you adjust for inflation, is $668 million uh, adjusted for, for inflation in today's money. So, um, yeah, this... So don't mind what we say about it. Apparently, audiences loved yeah. it. Or at least showed up for they, it. Yeah, people really ate this up. And I think just to sort of contextualize the experience of like seeing all the underwater action, I think I think after Goldfinger, people would have shown up for anything. Um, it's kind of kind of like the same the yeah. same thing happens with uh, like uh, the Spy Who Loved Me was up to that point Roger Moore's biggest hit. People were loving Bond all over again. And then the next film was going to be set in space after Star Wars. So Moonraker is also a big one. But um, if you adjust this for inflation, this is the highest grossing Bond film domestically at $668 million. And if you adjust for inflation, this is the 30th highest grossing film of all time is Thunderball. Oh, yeah. Crap. Wow. Okay. Which, this is a true blockbuster. This is, yeah. You know, people people go to Jaws as the, the first blockbuster. I say uh, I say Thunderball is the first blockbuster. So uh, It's definitely, yeah. I, I took a note because uh, I, I did see, I didn't know it grossed that much, but I did see that it was the biggest, I think it is the biggest grossing film in the U.S. or on U.S. screens in 1966. Oh, yeah. And that it basically, it, it did one, two, three was basically Thunderball in first place, and behind it was Dr. Zhivago, which is a genuine epic, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which was like the new Hollywood encroaching. Yeah. So Thunderball was still holding, holding tough at that point, and that's some pretty stiff competition to be held up against. It really is. All right. Well, uh, Jack, is there uh, anything else uh, you have to say or any thoughts about uh, Thunderball? Other than, 
Other than pointing out that when he first meets Domino, he compliments her and says that most girls paddle around, but you swim like a man, which is an amazing thing that someone wrote down and someone else said, that's a good thing to have someone say on screen. And then someone said it on screen and now it's part of cinema history. Yeah. Remarkable. (laughs) That was one of the, I've paused a lot for like the death takes, but I also feel like I might've paused there just to let that one sink in as like, seriously, she swims like a man. (laughs) By the way, she doesn't swim like a man. She swims like a woman who is capable of swimming. (laughs) Not quite sure what that means. even. (laughs) Well, you know, back then women couldn't even open car doors. So uh, that's true. Yeah. Without without arousing suspicion. (laughs) How dare, how dare she have her own agency and how she swims. Hmm. But uh, anyways, uh, yeah, Thunderball. So um, overall, I really enjoyed this one revisiting it. Uh, I have a lot, a lot of appreciation towards it. Uh, It is, it is kind of unwieldy. It is very shaggy. Uh, You could, you could honestly trim down a lot of the underwater sequences, but I think it's, I think at this point it's still a good film. Yeah, I think definitely. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think it's, it's, it's not like it's not a chore to sit through it. It can drag a little bit, but it's definitely. I think on the on balance, it's entertaining, well worth checking out. If you if you are nice. in into James Bond, no reason to, to avoid it. Oh yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah, if you're seeking all these out, you know, you know, maybe maybe you'll have your own opinion. Maybe this will be your favorite of the first four. Sure, I kind of doubt it, but uh, who knows? Who knows who will like? This? We'll have that discussion but, uh, when it happens. Absolutely. So, uh, in the meanwhile, uh, I've been Jake Tropila. You can find me on Twitter at Jake Tropila. It's T as Tom, R-O-P as Paul, I-L-A. Uh, Jack, where can the good people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Real Jack Eason. That's O-R-E-A-L-J-A-C-K-E-A-S-O-N. Excellent. Yeah. If you want to write to us in general, you can hit up optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Or tweet at us at Optimism Vaccine. I promise we will read all inquiries. Uh, if you have a favorite moment in any of these Bond films we've watched so far, share them with us. Uh, give us your favorite character, your favorite gadget, what have you. Um, yeah, so that'll do it for us this evening. Uh, we'll see you again next month. Uh, until until next time, for your ears only, we'll return with the 1967 Casino Royale with Woody Allen. That's right. We're going to include it. All right. Have a good night, everyone.